One of our major goals of this podcast is to expand access. And for us, one of those things means to expand access to who goes to medical school. And so for this week's podcast, we're going to be talking about a particular population that doesn't get a lot of attention when we talk about access in higher education, and especially not access in health professions. This week's episode is about first-generation college students, and it's a really important topic with a lot of people that fit into it. So buckle up for a really interesting session. Whether you identify as first-generation or not, there's a lot of really helpful concepts, ideas, and conversations to join us on. So I hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast, the show to help all pre-health students on their journey to acceptance. Our goal each episode is to share information our students need to succeed, connect them with resources, answer their questions, and make this incredibly stressful process just a little easier. Our episodes vary in length from a little over five minutes to around an hour, so tune in to our shorts on your walk between classes, and if you've got a little bit more time, enjoy one of our longer episodes. I am this week's host, John Moses Bronson. I am very excited to have a colleague with me today that you have not heard from on the podcast. So I'm actually going to start with letting him introduce himself. So Mark, welcome to um, the podcast studio uh, for the first time. Um, So this is a very special episode. So why don't you talk about who you are, your background a little bit, and specifically why you got brought in for this conversation. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me in for this conversation. Uh, I'm really passionate about this specific topic. So my name is Mark Counterman. I am a pre-health advisor here at Penn State. I joined the team in June of 2021. Uh, So It's been a little while, and prior to this, I have worked in several different fields. My education background started at Penn State, uh, where I had intended to become a doctor and study pre-medicine, and very quickly realized that it wasn't for me, and went into education. I taught chemistry at a high school in Virginia for a few years before moving into higher ed, where I worked in admission at North Dakota State and then in a TRIO student sports services program supporting first-generation college students. I also have a master's degree in educational leadership with a focus in higher education, and a lot of my graduate school work has been focused on first-generation college students. I'm a first-generation college graduate myself from Penn State, and I am very familiar with a lot of the challenges that we will be talking about and a lot of the exciting things that our first-gen pre-health students can learn and hopefully utilize about their identity moving forward. So for me, as we were talking about, A, the importance of this topic to really share with our our listeners out there, um, could you give like a very simplified sort of like 
idiot-proof uh, definition of what is a first-gen student. Because I think the term gets tossed around a lot, and mm-hmm. I don't know that people fully understand like what the f- specific technical definition is. Yeah, absolutely. And there are several different definitions that have been accepted and used, ranging from the first in their family to go to college, to being the first in their family to obtain a four-year degree, uh, from a U.S. granting institution, that's typically what's been used for TRIO programs yeah. um, and how we typically operate at Penn State. Yeah. So for students who their parents maybe have some college, like myself, both of my parents went to college but never finished, mm-hmm. and that was many, many moons ago. Yeah. Um, I was the first in my family to go to and complete a four-year degree, and that's yeah. typically kind of the general understanding of what a first-generation college student would be. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people that don't work in student support want to have this exist in a completely like black and white fashion. And I see sort of see this more you, you know, for me personally, my my passion population is LGBTQ students, queer students, gender nonconforming students because that's a population I belong to. And one of the big things that we want people to understand is that we exist in this really nice spectrum. And I think it's sort of the same thing with this population. I just don't think that we've traditionally seen it that way. And I don't think that's how a lot of people in the other parts of the industry necessarily want to see Mm -hmm. it either. I think that there really is a really nice spectrum that people sort of follow along because, you know, the experience of someone going to a traditional four-year institution and getting a degree is quite different than someone whose parent maybe did online. You know, my mom got her degree, her associate's degree, um, through correspondence course, which doesn't even exist anymore. She would get boxes of VHS tapes with accounting (laughs) on it. And, you know, it was like 20 hours worth of lectures, but it was on VHS tape it was a very different learning environment, right? And so for a parent like that to help coach a student through anything is challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, the AMC's definition I find, like, depressingly narrow, it, which is, you know, that either of your parents, which I think parents is a prob- is problematic language for a number of reasons, but we're not going to go into that, that neither of them earned an associate's degree or higher in education. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's a really narrow viewpoint of mm-hmm. what a first-gen student looks like because, again, someone who went to perhaps a community college, not that there's anything wrong with going to a community college, this is a really different educational, logistical mm-hmm. experience than going to a place like Penn State. Those things just don't, like, compute with one another. Yeah. Um So, you know, I hope that as we're having this conversation today, people sort of can see themselves existing somewhere on the spectrum, sort of regardless of what your family makeup looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to give my familial background, 
Uh, both of my parents did a little over a year of undergraduate. Uh, my father went to Pittsburgh, and my dad or my mom went to East Stroudsburg mm-hmm. before they got married and dropped out. And my dad worked as a contractor for many years and worked in construction. My mom is now support staff at our local elementary school uh, in our school district. So. We like we're able to get by, but just like with many other first generation students, money was always an issue. Um, A lot of first gen students come from lower income backgrounds are typically Pell recipients Mm -hmm. as well. And I think in the grand scheme of things, like my mom thought that I could come to Penn State and find a rich person to sponsor me to pay for my college. Mm That's the kind of thing that you're going to experience as a first-gen student who's trying to get your baccalaureate, your bachelor's degree. There's just a lot of unknown. Mm -hmm. And I think from when I was in school a little over 10 years ago to now, it seems like being first-gen and first-gen support programs have really taken off Mm -hmm. at Penn State and across the country. Uh, It's being something that's really talked about now, which is very encouraging to me. Yeah. And, you know, there wasn't essentially like a bellwether moment that really pushed that forward. When we look at a lot of the other sort of like big movements in higher ed, you know, there was a huge movement in starting to have identity specific support services after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, Women's centers started to become more of a thing once You know, there was more legislation around women's rights, especially after Title IX. We saw a huge increase in those kinds of services. There wasn't really a lightning rod moment. So I think what we find is that there are certainly schools that are keeping up. There are schools that are being really innovative and forward thinking in their work. And then we also see a number of schools that are uh, dreadfully behind (laughs) Right. So, you know, looking at our our listener statistics, we know we have listeners not just at Penn State, but across the country. A number of listeners in Austria and Germany. Hi, folks. Danke schön. (laughs) And at least two listeners in uh, Eastern Southeast Asia. I know no words in those languages. Uh, And it would be like throwing a dart at a dartboard to guess Mm -hmm. which one anyway. But um it's I completely forgot where I was going with that Mark (laughs) that's okay I can jump in here and I think in in terms of students being from all over the place Mm -hmm. one like major piece of advice that I just want to give up front is if their institution has a trio program Mm -hmm. they should try to join them so for undergrads they may look at student support services or they can look at the McNair Scholars Program if they're really interested in research and potentially earning a PhD down the road Mm -hmm. Um, that's really great for that but that's going to be a really really supportive program to help those first-gen students persist and and graduate. That's really the goal. I think the other thing that that students really need to... I lost my train of thought as well. That's okay. Thankfully, you reminded me what I was talking about, which was each school is going to have different support structures in place. There might not be an office that says first-gen support, There might not be some – so where I went to grad school, I went to this itty-bitty school 
north of Boston. It's called Merrimack College. And they have someone there who is the first generation experience coordinator, right? So there's someone who's focused on that. That's relatively easy to find when you do like a search of an institution, right? Her name's going to pop up. Now, honestly, that was like a number of years ago that I was in that program. Mm -hmm. So she might not be the same person there. But at institutions where there is that sort of identifying marker, it's pretty easy to find Mm -hmm. those sorts of support services. At other places, like with the TRIO program, that might not pop up as easily in a Google search or if you're just looking at a list of departments and programs in your student services or student affairs divisions. So sometimes it's about knowing the right people to ask at your institution. Generally, an academic advisor is a great person to to talk to about, you know, I'm a first-gen student. I'm trying to look for some support. Um, you know, we're pretty lucky at Penn State that there's a lot of different sort of things that are supporting this population in different ways. We have a great student group called First Gen Advocates that, you know, it's a bunch of first gen students sort of like peer supporting one another. And finding a tribe is like super helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, having people who get it is like a very powerful experience. <laughs> so my advice is to try and find your tribe in whatever way you got to figure it out. Yeah. And where I was going before is I didn't realize that I was a first generation college student until I was halfway or at least starting my graduate program. Yeah. So I spent my entire four years of undergrad at Penn State wondering what the heck was going on. And then finally, when I learned, hey, this is what first-generation college students are, here are some of the challenges and obstacles that they face, Mm -hmm. it all kind of clicked for me that, hey, if I would have known this about myself, I would have been able to find those resources. So I think it's important for everyone to learn what a first-generation student is and how to support them. Yeah. And, And beyond that, you know, one of the things that we talked about earlier is that if you don't look at this as a binary whether you, yes, you are, no, you're not, and you think of it as a spectrum. If you see any of these sort of like commonalities that we're going to, you know, because we're going to talk about a lot of aspects of this population. If you see anything that resonates with you, there's nothing stopping you from, you know, building some skills to help yourself. This exists on a spectrum. Take from this what is valuable to you. If it doesn't apply, you don't have to necessarily utilize it. But, you know, we're going to be talking about a lot of things that can help a wide variety of students. You know, one of the things that, you know, will probably come up multiple times in in this conversation is that there's a lot of intersectionality in this population, right? A lot of, uh, you know, underrepresented racial minorities are included in this group. You already mentioned socioeconomically disadvantaged students. A lot of students with disabilities, especially uh, invisible disabilities, so uh, whether intellectual, you know, developmental, you know, learning disabilities, they are overrepresented in this population. A lot of LGBTQ students tend to appear in this population as well. So there's not like one specific way that it looks, and there's not one specific way that like everything's going to mystically click together. It's about understanding yourself in a deeper level. We're just giving you more tools to put in your toolkit for how you understand yourself, your journey, 
and what comes next. Yeah, absolutely. I think as first-generation pre-health students, for, for the listeners, as we talk about some of the the obstacles or the feelings that you're having, I think you should feel validated that you're not alone in this journey and that there are support systems in place and, and ways that you can utilize different resources mm-hmm. to be able to achieve, achieve your dream of becoming a doctor, becoming a dentist or a physician assistant or insert health profession here. Um, there are traits that I think first-generation students or competencies that first-generation students can really demonstrate in a way uh, similar to some of those populations that you had mentioned before, John, that students who come from continuing generation college student family or, or families who their parent or guardians have four-year degrees, uh, they may not have the same experiences. And mm-hmm. I think that gives them not necessarily a leg up, but definitely a capacity to talk about them from personal experiences. Yeah. You know, we're going to be sort of applying a lot of this to what it means to apply. And a good application relies on your experiences in your history, your background, your lived experience to drive what's being read and the intention of your application. And so I think the the point that Mark's making is so, so important for you all to understand that like your experiences are so valuable and it doesn't just make you like an okay applicant leaning into the experiences that you've had, the lessons that you've learned and the skills and competencies that you've developed can make you an exceptional applicant if you have the self-awareness to understand how it's played a role or hasn't played a role in your journey. So um, at Penn State, we have a pretty sizable first-gen population. It's like not a small percentage. No, so I actually have... Uh, some of the the numbers, this comes from what I was looking up prior, one in eight students, according to the AMC, are first generation. Mm -hmm. At Penn State, specifically in the College of Science, it's one in five are first generation. And overall at Penn State, we're at around 16,000 first generation college students overall throughout our system. A lot of them are coming from our Commonwealth campuses. But there's still a sizable number. If I remember correctly, I think it was about a thousand first generation students were admitted to the University Park campus this year. Uh, and that was a, a point of pride uh, to try to increase the diversity of the class. Yeah, it's a big part of higher education is that it helps to break cycles of poverty um, cycles of socialization so these are some like pretty like lofty (laughs) concepts that like we know about in our work but we we see higher education as a tool for people to create the lives that they want to live and deserve to live i know so many first gen students that because of their experience they have such great insights into the problems of the world Right? They live in areas where a lot of people aren't pursuing higher education or 
don't feel like they can or should or have been actively demotivated from pursuing higher ed. And they see the problems that exist in those places and the services that are and aren't provided. And they come with a background ready to help tackle those. You know, in um, in the session that that Mark presents, he has these really wonderful slides that bring up some student voices. And to me, the most compelling one was a student who was, um, you know, Hispanic identified, so Latinx, and lived in a really heavily identified neighborhood and assumed that the healthcare providers would reflect the diversity of that community. And when they started shadowing, discovered, oops, spoiler alert, <laughs> that's not the case. And didn't even necessarily have people who could speak the language that the majority of people in that area spoke. So a huge barrier to access, just being able to understand the person that you're talking to. You know, the number one highest monolinguistic language in the United States is obviously English. It's the primary language that we all speak. The second highest is Spanish. So we need Spanish language providers pretty much everywhere. And even in a neighborhood that primarily serves that population, we don't have people with that competency, with that proficiency. So we certainly aren't having them in other areas and it creates a barrier. So you know, one of the things that I hope comes across as we sort of get more into the weeds on all this is that your experience, your life, it is a powerful, powerful tool for you to help schools see your power, your value in the application cycle. You know, one of the, in the application series um, that we are, are also producing, we talk a lot about the AAMC's uh, experiences, attributes, and metrics model. And there are so many intersections with identity on this and the value and importance that those things provide. And it's gonna come up in a lot of the things that we talk about because students are not just one thing when they apply. So, you know, we're gonna reference it, so be prepared for that. <laughs> But uh, I, I just want you to feel like proud of where you came from and your identity as a first-gen student because, you know, Mark alluded to this earlier, there's so many competencies that you demonstrate and just so many natural, beautiful ways that other applicants have to work really hard to show even marginally. Yeah, I think with with some applicants, they need to say that they are empathetic or they need to say that they're resilient. Mm -hmm. But first-generation students may come from backgrounds where family is a really big thing for them, mm -hmm. right? And going away to college can be very difficult. Um, and they've just developed this sense of, of empathy and caring for their family and that sometimes draws them back to their family or mm -hmm. to their neighborhoods like you mentioned uh, sometimes first generation students are coming in and they don't have the same level of academic preparation as continuing generation students they'll 
lack the AP credits or dual enrollment credits that some other students will have and they get off to a rough start and this is something we see across the board for our students Um, and they have the resilience to know that they have this fire burning down deep in their belly and they they want it so bad that they're able to be resilient they're able to have that capacity for improvement because they are just hungry for that feedback from professors from advisors you know even potentially from their peers to try to be as successful as they possibly can yeah and i really want to like reiterate this skill in particular some of the students that i find are the most difficult to work with are the ones where they have generations of people working in the health professions as physicians or dentists they it's sometimes, and this is not a 100% thing, if you identify in this way, I'm not necessarily specifically speaking about everyone who has family, but sometimes they come into meetings and discussions as though they already have it all figured out. And the failure here, and Mark, you know this, and you started after like you know the, the rest of us, is that things have changed very quickly. In admissions, things have changed since you started, mm-hmm. and things are going to continue to change in how students get assessed and evaluated. What things are being looked for, what types, what elements to their stories are really necessary. So, this skill of looking for feedback, finding ways to integrate it and personalize it, is a really invaluable skill in this this admissions process because you are already starting from a much better place and perspective than even these folks who are supposed to, on paper, have a leg up. But that only happens if you're actively working and engaging with us so that we can help sort of pull back the curtain and give you that feedback. It's not a weakness to work with us and ask for help. We are here to even the playing field. Yeah, I'd say it's... It's even a strength. What we've seen is for our first gen students, for students from various identities, from our students even who come from backgrounds with families in the health professions, the ones who work with us end up being the most successful and confident in their application cycle when they're ready to apply as opposed to when they feel they need to be ready to apply. Mm -hmm. And I think that again ties into being first generation and one of the the big obstacles that they'll find is being pressured Mm -hmm. as kind of that extrinsic motivator for them whether it's by family or by money or by themselves Mm -hmm. to need to be ready at x whether that's after their third year or whenever and for some the journey may be a little bit longer For our first-gen students who maybe they need to work at a Panera Bread for two years like I did when I was at Penn State uh, just to be able to pay the bills, to pay rent and and get food, Uh, whereas students coming from, I, I guess I'd call it more privileged backgrounds, they're able to do the fun study abroad experiences, they're able to join research labs 
And I think part of that comes from just an education deficit for first-generation students. They don't know they can find a paid research position for the equivalent that they would be getting at the Panera Bread or the Subway Mm -hmm. or working in a work-study position at a front desk. There are these opportunities out there. It's just about sharing them. Yeah. I think a really important idea here is this feeling of imposter syndrome as well. Some people call it stereotype or threat, but essentially what we mean when we say imposter syndrome is that there's this pervasive feeling sometimes with a lot of populations, but this happens a lot with first-gen students, of like, I don't belong here, I'm not good enough for this, I see all these people who are doing all of these things they're doing the research stuff on campus. They're doing those fancy study abroads. I'm not doing those things, so I don't belong. I don't deserve to go to medical school because I didn't do those things. And like Mark, you said, like by having the right information provided to you, it can really change what your preparation looks like. And that's what I want. That's a, like a really important takeaway is that we can help you find new pathways. It doesn't have to be what you've heard other people have done. We can find a unique pathway for you based on your passions and interests, right? Maybe you're not a research baby. <laughs> not everybody is a research baby. I was would not have been a research baby, or at least not a STEM research person, right? So often students are like, well, I've done research, but it wasn't like in a bio lab. And I'm like, did you learn how to do this? Did you develop this skill? Did you help train new people in the lab? Well, yeah, but it wasn't in that context. And I'm like, but you have the transferable skills. You have a skill set completely different than someone who's been pipetting in a microbiology lab for three years, just running the same assay or array over and over and over and over again. You've developed different skill sets, right? There's a lot of myth-busting that we do in our work, particularly with this population, because it's outdated or just plain incorrect information or information that worked for one other person. So much of the journey of students going into the health professions is that it's unique. So much of the journey of a first-gen student is like, yeah, there's a lot of sort of like services that are like kind of built similarly, but how you use them and glean value from them is is should also be really well individualized yeah imposter syndrome is i'd say one of the most common obstacles that our first generation students face Mm -hmm. and especially as they go into their application year one of the things that i try to get across to my students who are applying to medical school or other health professions programs is that it's okay to use your background as part of your application. So if you were a caregiver for a sick family member for the first year and a half of COVID, uh, when your school was remote, you can put that on the application and really put in what you took out of that experience Mm -hmm. because family is something that's really important to you. So you had to be there for your sick grandparent or parent or sibling. I've also had students kind of refuse to put some of their more interesting hobbies on the application Mm -hmm. because they didn't think that it was important that they were a distance runner and they were running 60 miles a week and they would do marathons Mm -hmm. and qualified for Boston and things like that. 
those are really cool things that you know are similar for first generation and continuing generation students but one population is afraid to put it on their application they feel like it doesn't belong there when in fact everyone does these things Mm -hmm. right one thing for first generation students at penn state that i really try to hammer is they belong here Mm -hmm. they were accepted to penn state which is a top university in the united states and pennsylvania and they are capable of being successful yeah so they don't have to feel that self-doubt and they will Mm -hmm. right i can tell them they don't have to but they will but i think just hearing someone validate their fears and concerns and share with them that they care about them as a student as a human and they want them to be successful can be the first step in alleviating that yeah there's a real compulsion you know i think particularly pronounced in this population but i think again it's it's pretty pervasive but i i see it a lot more with this population where you want to conform to the viewpoint of what you think is wanted out of you in an application cycle to try and be the applicant that you think schools are looking for instead of just being the applicant that you already are. You know, I had a student that had to, you know, similar to to Mark, had to work a lot of hours in a service job. Now, they didn't have to, but that's, you know, what they were able to find and that's what they did. And they weren't going to include it in their application. And I said, well, like, tell me about your experience. They talked about how there were some really challenging days in that service job. You know, during certain times of the year, the demands escalated so incredibly high during the time that they were there that she had to find completely new ways to serve clients. And I said, that shows a really strong ability to be adaptable, to, to adjust your message to your audience, to adjust your approach. Can you think of any like applications of that in, in medicine? And she's like, well, if you're an emergency medical professional and a, a natural disaster happens, you have to adjust your approach to be able to address the volume, the severity of cases. And I said, that's exactly the type of skill sets that they're looking for. So by pushing that student to sort of see what that skill looked like at the next phase, just applied in a different way, they included it in their application, and then they actually got a letter of recommendation from their supervisor to talk about those skills in really meaningful ways. And it became part of her story, and she didn't have to allocate any characters to it in her personal statement or other parts of her application. It just became a part of who she is. It didn't have to be the core. It was just a really nice additional piece of her story. I think when it comes to things like that, the application, I like to look of it, look at it as the entire picture of who you are. You have your personal statement in those characters. You have your experiences section. You have your letters of recommendation. And as I mentioned, first-generation students, they may come in and really struggle in their first biology or chemistry or math class. But 
if someone comes in and they fail their first exam, mm -hmm. very common, happens all the time. But if a first-generation student is able to fail their first exam and recover and get a C or a B in that class, a lot of students would think a C in intro chem is going to disqualify them, mm -hmm. right? One of the myths that I know has been busted many, many times. Yeah. That made demonstrate that grit mm -hmm. that all of these health professions programs are looking for yeah. or working and adapting in a service industry, that grit that they are looking for and utilizing the experiences, sections, characters, and having your letters of recommendation from a professor that you got a C in, but you really put in the work and you really demonstrated that grit, yeah. I think goes a lot further than a letter of recommendation that says, Mark was a student in my class. He performed in the top 20% and uh, he came to office hours a couple of times and I think he would be a perfectly reasonable doctor. Mm -hmm. That's not the kind of letter that you want versus one who they came to office hours all the time. They were asking questions. They were sitting in front in class. Yeah. They actually became a learning assistant in my class in the future mm -hmm. because they started to demonstrate the knowledge and kept coming back to me. And they kept that relationship going throughout their four years of college. I really got to know them as a person. They demonstrate empathy and cultural competency and great communication skills. Yeah. And I think they would be a wonderful physician down the road. That's the kind of letter that you'll get with that grit, with that growth. Yeah, I think a lot of times people underestimate the power of a letter. And we know from talking to admissions officials that there's a ton of power in those letters. They can sometimes change the course of an application. So it is important as first-gen students to be thinking about who can help you tell your story. And we talk about this for every student and every application. But your journey looks different. So sometimes you have to look a little bit broader of who can tell that full scope of your story. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's also part of what we're here for in pre-health advising. We're going to help you figure out who are the necessary voices to support your narrative. You know, if you think of it like, you know, uh, a news article online, sometimes they do interviews to sort of support the main narratives that are going on. This is no different. You are still the driver of your story. You are still the main character in the six o'clock news, uh, news article. But there's just going to be some other people that you're calling in to support what you're saying. Your application is a package. And what we want to do in pre-health advising is really help you formulate that package and put a bow on it. Mm -hmm. And I think for first-generation students, it takes a little bit more time to craft that package mm -hmm. because there are such diverse backgrounds mm -hmm. going into it. But it really can be a phenomenal final product when it's done. Yeah, let's pull apart some of the elements of the application and talk about how a first-gen student story might intersect with some of those different pieces. I think that might be helpful to sort of like ground it in the reality of the different elements. Because I think when we talk about it in like application as a whole, it feels a bit too abstract. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the most, sort of the low-hanging fruit here would be the personal statement. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of students might feel compelled like, okay, well, I'll shove something in the personal statement. That's where it belongs. That's where I talk about myself. Bam. 
that it could be it could go in the personal statement um you know i have certainly know of some students who have used it quite well mark have you worked with any students that have sort of integrated that into the personal statement in a, in a good way yeah i think it, it really also depends on which application service too because there True. there are aspects of the application service where you get to share what your education background is, what your family's education background is, what kind of environment you were raised in, whether it was rural or underserved. And I've had some students do a phenomenal job of describing their background and where they came as in combination with why they want to go into medicine or dentistry. Uh, I worked with a student this past cycle who was a first-generation immigrant and first-generation college student. She uh, helped with a free dental clinic that she was a part of in high school when she was doing a dental assisting program. And she really just, that passion grew. She wasn't satisfied with the dental assisting program. She wasn't able to finish it because she actually finished school early Mm -hmm. and then was like, I want to go into dental school to help my community from her country that she came in, the immigrants from her community. And she integrated that into her personal statement in a way that, again, some other students, continuing generation or, or others, just haven't been able to. And she was able to get accepted to dental school, which is very exciting. Yeah. I once had a student write about how when they first came to Penn State, you know, the University Park campus in particular, they felt like a stranger in a foreign land. Like all the people sort of looked like them, like the buildings were buildings, but like do you know what the uncanny valley is mark okay so uncanny valley is this concept in sort of like technology philosophy so basically what it means is like something looks a little too real i know it's not real but it looks just like slightly too real and it makes me uncomfortable (laughs) and the student felt the same way about penn state it all looked like it was supposed to be real, but something felt off. They felt like a stranger there. And they talked about how they felt that same way walking into their first clinical shadowing experience until they saw some, uh, you know, the, the, the physician that they were, this was a, an MD candidate, a physician that they were shadowing worked with a person from their neighborhood. They had never met the person before. But this student was, uh, their parents were Ukrainian immigrants, and this was a Ukrainian person, spoke very minimal English, but they happened to be fluent in Ukrainian, and they were able to communicate and get additional information out and help to contextualize the information that the physician was giving. And it was such a powerful moment for that student. And they said, like, you know, it can seem really simple on the surface. I didn't think much of it until, like, you forced me to write stories from my my past that helped me to know that this was the right direction to go and it ended up being the the core of her essay she hadn't thought about it since it happened and so sometimes when we force you to write things we have reasons for forcing you to write things and i think i actually i've worked with that student before Mm -hmm. too Um, they're a magical little unicorn now (laughs) yes they are i think 
kind of tying along with your first point with students coming and feeling out of place, feeling that that lack of sense of belonging, especially at a large university like Penn State, Mm -hmm. you may feel like you are a small fish in a big ocean. Mm -hmm. And that may be the case. But when you start breaking things down into the communities that you're a part of, you can start to become a bigger fish in a smaller pond here at, at Penn State. Yeah. So when you think about for first-year students in their residence halls, mm-hmm. right, you really can become a part of that community and find that sense of belonging there. Yeah. You can join student clubs, organizations, club sports, mm-hmm. research labs. You can find employment, and that can really help you meet people and, and find that sense of belonging. And there are some organizations like the First Gen Advocates that you had mentioned, Mm -hmm. or there are cultural organizations here at Penn State that students Mm -hmm. may become a part of, because culture is a big part for first-generation college students, for many of them. And some of the the struggles or challenges that they have is adjusting to college Mm -hmm. right off the bat, because there's that cultural mismatch, Mm -hmm. is what we refer to it as in the first-gen realm, Mm -hmm. and trying to help them understand that hey, you can find your home here at Penn State. There are hundreds and hundreds and maybe even over a thousand student organizations. It's just about knowing where to look and how to find them. Yeah, I think a big thing with that idea is that I think a lot of people get demotivated if the first thing that they try doesn't pan out or they don't find that feeling of connection. A lot of our... uh, more experienced students or students who have been around whose parents have been in the game is, well, try something else. At Penn State, my goodness, I think that we're still over a thousand clubs and organizations. We have all these social clubs. You mentioned so many different ways to get involved. There isn't like a perfect fit just because it sounds like it could be interesting to you. And sometimes making surprising choices might be just as valid. I had a student who was um, Southeast Asian and um, but was born in the United States, grew up in a very like, they were taught to Americanize. And so they found it quite difficult to fit in when they first came to to Penn State um, because where they came from was significantly more diverse than here at Penn State and they found that the place where they fit in was a very surprising place it was a cultural group for um, Southeast Asian students I forget which specific nationality but um, she talked about how she really found a part of herself that she didn't know was there through that so sometimes it's about trying something new even if it wasn't something that was presented to you as a potential option before. So much of the college experience is about exploration. And with a lot of my first-gen students, they want to stay on a really narrow track to their goals. And they don't really want to stray too much because I think, again, they're trying to conform to what they think that track should look like. Whereas those like really beautiful detours just really help to... A, make you enjoy this experience more. It helps you to burn out less easily. And again, it it can help you tell your story in a really cool way. Who comes to Penn State and finds their culture? The answer is very few students. (laughs) Yeah, the the beauty of Penn State is 
And you'll find this at, at some schools like where I was in the Midwest. You come to Penn State, and Penn State is either the least diverse place that you've ever been, mm-hmm. or for some people, it may be the most diverse place that they've ever been. Yeah. And I think that allows you to be exposed to different cultures and mm-hmm. different backgrounds in a way that maybe you haven't been before. And again, one of the core competencies is cultural competency. And I think that the more you engage and learn mm-hmm. about different cultures, the more well-rounded and a better, not only a candidate, but a human being you'll be. Yeah. And first-generation students, I think, just have a, such a unique background that they can use their skill set, their background, mm. to connect with people from different cultures and different backgrounds. Yeah. One of the things I want to talk about, you know, one of the focuses of um, when I was doing my, uh, I did a little, like very little doctoral work, but life happened and then, you know, I'll get back to it eventually. But part of that was in rural sociology. At Penn State, a huge proportion of our population comes from rural areas. And one of the things that we see with this population is that a feeling that they don't have culture. Because we don't condition and educate people from rural areas to see their lived experiences as a shared culture. And one of the important things here is like if you're not identifying with these conversations of culture, it might be because you've never been asked to think of where you came from as having culture or being a unique cultural experience. And again, I think this is, it's really helpful for us to help you sort of break apart and contextualize because there's a lot of programs that specifically look for students who come from rural backgrounds. There are programs where if you don't come from a rural county, they won't even consider you for it, right? The Physician Area Shortage Program at Jefferson, you have to be from a rural county to be considered for that program. Even if you've done everything under the sun to serve rural communities, if you didn't come from one of those backgrounds, they're not going to evaluate you, right? So if you don't think of your background as providing value or providing a unique perspective, I just want to challenge you to think about it a little bit differently because everybody's background is valuable. I have so many students who are like, well, I can't talk about where I come from because, like, who cares? They care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Admissions cares. Yeah. So I think kind of moving us through the personal statement, it can definitely be integrated in there in yeah. a way, thinking about where they come from and their culture. Yeah. And pre-health advisors, like you said, are really good at helping them with that integration. In other aspects of the application that I think it could be used would be the experiences section and being open to using things that maybe they would consider as unorthodox or off the path, right? So maybe you do put distance running. Maybe you do put that you like smoking meat, Mm -hmm. right? Because cooking was something that was really important to you and you were the one that prepared your family meals. Yeah. Um, or you grew up working on your family farm or you continue to do that. Yes, absolutely. I've had uh, students that do that. Mm-hmm. And really taking those things and using those transferable skills and reflecting about how meaningful they can be mm-hmm. for working with patients moving yeah. forward. Understanding how the competencies that you demonstrate from these roles can be applied to medicine or yeah. any health profession. So 
while being a first-generation student can be in the personal statement, I think the experiences or the work and activity section can really be utilized in a way for first-generation students that can only benefit them in one way. And if it's left out, if they, they aren't recognizing their identity, it can really kind of hurt their their background and their ability to tell their story yeah you you dilute yourself and i think that's a really big bifurcation moment is that we see these students with more who have like you know parents and family members who have like done the college thing or advanced degrees degrees thing they see everything they've ever done as something that contributes to their story. Whereas a lot of first-gen students sort of want to dilute down to the essentials. This application is so much about exposing all of who you are because everything that you've done, all the elements of who you are, helps to make you a great applicant. So there aren't parts that you necessarily need to hide. It's more about determining where they are both best meant to live in the experiences or work and activities one area that i would say first generation students really struggle with is shadowing yeah a lot of times if you come from backgrounds where you you know family members in healthcare it's easy to leverage those connections yeah. and find those shadowing opportunities but for first generation students they don't know anyone who's a doctor or a dentist Mm -hmm. or a PA. And it's really hard to gain that initial exposure. So there are programs like SHPEP, the Summer Health Professions Education Program, which can provide valuable experiences to first-generation or underrepresented in medicine populations in their first two years of college to to get that exposure, mm-hmm. to get that leg up. And we encourage students to apply to those programs. Mm-hmm. But then for our Penn State students, I've started encouraging them to do several things, to reach out to their family physician that maybe mm-hmm. they had growing up, their pediatrician, their dermatologist, yeah. you know, whatever field. Uh, because everyone wants to be a sports medicine doctor. Everyone wants to be a, a surgeon. But maybe you never had surgery before. Yeah. And how are you going to get to know a physician? So as a, a Penn State student and future Penn State alumni, I encourage our first-gen students to also utilize that network. Mm-hmm. Penn State loves to brag about having the largest dues-paying alumni association in the world. And there are Penn Staters everywhere. Yeah. My grad um, graduate supervisor, she came from Penn State. Mm-hmm. Um, there, My colleague, her husband went to Penn State when I was at NDSU. So they're literally all over the place. And for students at Penn State who are coming from places like Philadelphia or New York City or Chicago or, you know, insert major city here or (laughs) suburbs or, you know, wherever it can be, there's likely a Penn State Alumni Association near you. And you can Google Penn State Chicago Alumni Association and you can reach out to them and say, hey, I am a current Penn State student. I am hopeful to go to medical school. Mm-hmm. I would love to connect with any of our alumni in the area that are physicians. 
Yeah. And just have those conversations. Yeah. COVID has had a, a real impact on the ability to gain shadowing, but there's only so long when our students can use COVID as the reason for not having shadowing. Yeah, we're sort of moving out of that time period now. Yeah, we're moving out of that time period. So for those first-gen students, if they're able to make those connections with the physicians and get in and see shadowing, that's great. If not, they should look at doing things like informational interviews, saying, hey, can I set up a Zoom call with you and Mm -hmm. just talk to you about your background, your experience, your experience in medical school, your experience at Penn State. Like, tell me about your specialty. Tell me about the patients that you work with. What kind of setting are you in? Are you in hospital or outpatient private practice? Ask these kinds of questions and gain that insight. So that way, when you are applying, even if you don't necessarily have the, you know, 50, 100, however many hours, there's no right hour amount Mm -hmm. of shadowing you know about these different specialties. You formed this connection, and I think that will will be very valuable, more valuable than having nothing. Yeah. A breadth of experience is always really important, and so I really want to, like, double down on the utilizing your network. Another, I think, really valuable network is uh, if you are a College of Science student at University Park in particular, We have a mentor program that's run through development in our college, and they will do the work of connecting you to somebody. They try their best to match you to someone in your local area, in your interest area. But even if they aren't, let's say you want someone who's maybe more in primary care in the Philly area, and they're able to connect you with someone maybe in Reading, who's maybe in orthopedics, right? That's not exactly what you looked for, but you know, we think of medicine as this massive industry, but sometimes these networks are quite small. Someone in West Reading might have graduated from Drexel and might know or had previously worked in Philadelphia and might have a huge network to connect you to. Any connection is valuable. Yeah. And that's true for not just medicine, right? But I encourage my students that are looking at PA school Mm -hmm. to even contact their pediatrician, see if they have a PA in their office, or their dermatologist, and see if they have a PA in their office, or insert doctor that they've gone to in the past, and see if they have a PA in their office, or if they know any PAs. Uh, Sometimes... These students may have an, an aunt or uncle or cousin that has entered this health profession. And while you can shadow them, that's not really what you want to use. It, it's kind of iffy on that. But they probably know others in their profession that you can shadow. And ethically, it's more you know, clear than the 50 shades of gray that you're going to get by shadowing (laughs) your cousin. Yeah. Uh, Another great sort of like entry point for students is to start by volunteering at your local hospitals. Most hospitals have established volunteer programs. Each of them will have slightly different rules or expectations for their volunteers. So it's something to explore as soon as you can because especially like if they require a certain number of hours over a certain period of time, you need to be able to plan for that ahead of time, right? Like there are some like undergraduate volunteer programs that require you to do it over a fall or spring term. 
those are clearly designed for like the local colleges and universities where there are others that are designed for have a specific summer design right those are accessible for students who are coming back over the summer there are times where you don't do the college level shadowing and you just do the adult volunteering <laughs> those are great entry points because you know by working in a hospital you're making connections and networks maybe you're primarily working with nurses but guess who nurses work with Right. If they're if you're saying like, you know, I'm really trying to find some physician shadowing, they would be like, I know exactly who you should talk to. There's this wonderful doctor who brings shadowing students in all the time. Let me get you connected. Right. Networks can exist wherever you start them from. And it doesn't have to be a single network. Right. You make relationships with everybody that you meet. Everybody is an opportunity to build a relationship right? You might be working with all these patients and they might be like, oh, actually, my dad works here. <laughs> Let me see what he has to say about how to go about this, right? Because the culture of every healthcare institution is really different. Understanding that culture is very difficult when you exist from the outside, regardless of where you're coming from. So by building multiple networks of connection and support, it's going to help you navigate these really murky waters that exist for this. Two other programs that I wanted to talk about. Mark covered CHPEP, which is wonderful. Um, if you're a Pennsylvania resident, specifically if you're in sort of the more eastern part of the state, Geisinger has a summer program that's pretty great. And Penn State College of Medicine has the Primary Care Scholars Program. If you are interested in either of those medical schools, they're really good programs to get involved with because when those schools see those activities on your application, they give you a deeper look because you have a connection to their specific institution. The great thing about CHPEP is they can connect you to a lot of different institutions across the country. And so it can give you a really great new connection point to a really interesting institution that maybe you would have never been able to consider before, but now you have this personal connection to the institution. So th these programs are so powerful to helping you in the process and, you know, Many of them are designed with the intention to get more first-gen students into the doors of medical schools and dental schools and PA schools. So these programs exist, but, you know, go ahead, you go apply for them. Yeah, I think with all of these programs and really a lot of the advice that we've given, mentorship is going to be something that can be pulled in here. And I know that's a whole conversation to have. These programs expose you to mentorships, but for first-generation students, if you can find a mentor in a health profession, that will be incredibly valuable along the way. Uh, some other pieces of advice that I would like to give to our first-gen students is you got to take care of the house that you're in before you can take care of other things. So if you need to work to pay your bills, if you need to get your finances in order, you really have to do that. Because if you aren't eating, if you're not sleeping, then your academics are going to suffer. If your academics end up suffering, then your journey just extends, right? So you want to focus on that. And there are resources out there for students, such as the um, AAMC First, which pr provides financial information. There are fee assistance programs for a lot of these application services. Mm -hmm. And if you, as first-generation students, receive the Pell Grant, 
while you were at Penn State, you should almost certainly apply for these programs because there's a, a high likelihood that you may qualify and be able to apply to a certain number of programs for free yeah. and get discounted MCAT for free and MCAT preparation materials you know, for free or, or cheaper, right? Things that cost a lot of money that first-generation students may not necessarily have saved up. So another piece of advice is just to take care of your finances and look into these programs. Yeah, and if you're a College of Science student at Penn State, you know, we've recently come across some funds to help certain students with need. So... If, if you are applying in the health professions, you know, reach out. We want to support you. We want to help remove these barriers that we know exist. So, you know, I think one of the common threads here is like we are here to support you and we really mean it. We're not just like pretending. We're not whistling Dixie. We really, really want to support you on your journey and i'm pretty sure i just aged myself by using the phrase whistling dixie also i'm pretty sure that there's probably some racist undertones to that so i need to look at the etymology of that phrase probably not great oops oops so mark what are some of the last sort of parting things that you want to make sure that these students or, or people who want to learn more about this population know before we sort of wrap things up for the day? It's a, a population that you can't see. Yeah. And we covered that up front. And I want to wrap up with that. Um, you don't know if someone is coming from a continuing or first generation background until you start having these conversations. And when you consider the intersectionality of the college generation versus race, race, ethnicity versus gender identity versus, you know, all of these different things. We have a lot in common, yeah. but we also bring some special spices to this recipe that can go into your application for first generation students. I just, I cannot emphasize enough that yes, academics are important. Yes. You need to take care of your finances, but First-generation students aren't asking for help when they need it. They try to do self-advising. They rely on resources that they find on the Internet, which may or may not be relevant and applicable. Yeah. Um, so, like, you want to ask the people who are in the know. And that's us. Yeah. We're the ones that are talking to the schools. We are familiar with all of the changes that are happening in each cycle from year to year. We haven't even touched on the disadvantage statement that they used to have in AMCAS, which is now being switched to something TBD. Uh, but it's going to be about what are things that are important to your background, I believe. And you'll have a couple of characters to describe that. So use the resources both in your application and at Penn State, whether it's pre-health advising or tutoring, writing center, career services, all of the above and more to really maximize your time here. When I was here, I just scratched the surface of the, the resources that were available and I was excited and thrilled to graduate on time. 
but that came at a cost of not having some of the experiences like research or other things that I probably could and should have been a part of, yeah. right? So utilize your time here, maximize them. And for first-gen students, you don't have to be ready to apply after your third year, yeah. right? 80 to 90% of our PA students are taking at least one gap year. On average, they're taking two, which means they're applying after they graduate. Yeah. 70% of medical students nationwide take at least one gap year. So you can take the time here to gain the experiences necessary. Medical, dental, PA, optometry, podiatry, health professions programs are not going anywhere. Yeah. So we want you to feel ready and feel confident when you do apply. And I think that we can play a role in helping you get there. Yeah. Some, some important things is like, a health professions application is never something to just do and see how it goes. <laughs> Sometimes that's like an attractive thing. It feels like a low stress version of applying. It's stressful whenever you apply and it's really demotivating to not getting any results. And we know statistically that students are most successful in their first attempt. So if you don't put your f best foot forward on a first attempt, you're setting yourself up for a harder journey to get in. You know, there are absolutely students that are successful after three or four attempts, right? We listened to a panel of students recently at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine who all had longer journeys to medical school. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's also a very expensive journey to medical school. You know, and this is true of all health professions. There is no health profession that's like, well, it's not that expensive to apply. No, they're all very pricey. Money is a huge barrier and demotivator. It can cost thousands upon thousands of dollars to apply to these programs. One, we want to help remove some of those financial barriers. So we're going to help get you connected to financial resources both here and in the, in the, the professions. And we want to limit how many times you have to use that because some of the services... You've got one shot with the assistance. So if you use it on a cycle where you're like, I'll just see how it goes, and you don't put your full heart and soul into it, you've tossed a lot of money away. And that's that gift is not there again. Yeah. And if I never heard the phrase, I feel like I'm behind again in this process, I would be thrilled yeah. because there is no behind when it comes to these things. Everyone is on their own timeline, especially our first-gen students. Yeah. All right, Mark, I really want to thank you for sharing so much of your expertise in this area. Um, you know, this is a really, really important population, not just to us in pre-health, but, you know, at Penn State, it's an important population. And I think it's a growingly important population within the health professions, advising community, and in admissions as well. And I hope it continues to be, you know, again, because it is education is a tool to break the cycles in which we've placed ourselves and placed others through um, institutionalized racism and sexism and all the wonderful isms in the world. <laughs> I am saying that very sarcastically, by the way. Uh, but Again, thank you so much. And thank you all for sitting through this really important conversation, learning with us today. I hope you've all taken something away from this, and we'll see you next week on the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast. 
The Penn State Pre-Health Podcast is a production of the Pre-Health Advising Office and the Eberly College of Science at Penn State University. It is produced, edited, and promoted by the Pre-Health Advising Team. The views, opinions, and advice shared during this podcast are that of the hosts and any guests only and do not necessarily reflect the best advice for every student at every institution for every health profession. This is a nonprofit podcast made for the purpose of better serving pre-health students across the university system.